The Pace Line is produced by The Cycling Independent, the only cycling media completely free of commercial influence. We are community-supported and dedicated to the whole of cycling. As our tagline says, if you ride bikes, you're one of us. From the Cycling Independent, this is The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I'm Patrick Brady, and with me is my host, John Amlin Robot Lewis, the 16th. 24th. 24th, okay. Uh, each week, we take a look at how cycling fits in our lives. So, it's June, it's mid-June, and you're in the Boston area. How yes. summer is it? It's, it's... It's, I would call it sucker punch summer. <laughs> Boy, that could be that. Okay. Well, how, how does that fit? It's, um, well, like today and yesterday were, have been perfect days. Um, high, you know, right around 80, maybe high seventies, low 80 and no humidity sunshine. What is that even like? Even, it's bizarre. I'll tell you, it's bizarre. You know what I think it is? It's like, it's like the absence of weather. <laughs> yes. You know, yes. you're just living your life. There's you're just nothing living your life. On. Yeah. Yeah. You, there's nothing to say about it. <laughs> I mean, people have stopped and said, God, it sure is a perfect day. I guess it is, but it's perfect in its lack of relevance to anything. Right. right. Like it's neither impeding nor promoting. It's just, I don't know. It's bizarre. And I say sucker punch because, you know, um, it was pouring rain the other day. It turned cold, but it had been hot. And before it was hot, it had been cold and raining. It's just like whatever. Human mind has this um, tendency to. Um, extrapolate from the present, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. whatever is happening right now is whatever is going to be happening forever. Yeah. As a good example of this, when you have very young children and you're totally exhausted and at your wits end all the time, mm -hmm. you're miserable because you're like, oh my God, this is what life is now. Mm-hmm. That's not accurate. <laughs> life, <laughs> life is going to yes. change. Yeah. Um, so it's just, uh, there's no, there's no stasis to the, to the weather right now. It's whatever it is right now, get ready for the sucker punch. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I can see that. Um, mm -hmm, yeah. yeah. There are other places in the world that are not like that. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. A good friend of mine just moved to Ventura and, uh, he was sort of saying the weather is just this every day. It's just this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I should, I should say, I'm not complaining about the sucker punch. I actually think it's pretty great. I had one of those moments the other day where I left the grocery store and it was pouring rain and where, you know, normally someone might run to their car or whatever. I just, I just walked to my car the way I walked to my car and I wasn't trying to be defiant. I was thinking it's raining. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> This is real life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm starting to sound like a hippie, but I was sort of like, yeah, I'm going to get this rain on me. <laughs> this, this is good. <laughs> Robot as a hippie. Um, yeah. There's know, a it's, a stretch. it's weird, but there it is. <laughs> so, so you, we didn't record last week. You were in Memphis. Yes. And I think you're going to tell me about it later. To some degree. Yeah. Yeah. But so you rode. I did. And it was warm. <laughs> it was warm like Jeff Bezos oh. is affluent. Right. I just, I, yeah. Wow. I saw, the, I saw this great uh, change. I think it was a change.org uh, petition the other day uh, requesting uh, that we not allow Jeff Bezos to return from space. 
<laughs> Send me a link. I'll sign that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was doing pretty well. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I mean, I grew up in Memphis, and so I think I know about that that peculiar mm. combination of heat and humidity that makes you think any place but here, any yeah. place. And so I think like, you know, I have this history and I can go back. There were times in rides where I realized that it was so oppressive to me that my system was so thoroughly unprepared for what that does to the human body that it was as if I was being zapped of 20% of my wattage, uh, like only 20%. I'm impressed. Well, maybe even more. But like, I felt like I was at altitude. Like I just couldn't go all that hard. Because there's no air in the air. Yeah, it's all water. You're trying to get air in your body and there's no air. Yeah. And I actually heard uh, a radio DJ say that age old favorite of mine. It's going to be 90s and 90s. Oof. Yeah, I've graduated. I'm so um, anti-humidity that I've graduated from looking at the percentage. I'm now a dew point follower. Oh, oh, yeah. Any uh, any dew point over 60 degrees is a bummer. Uh Once the dew point is 70. You're you're in that like anywhere but here Uh zone. Yeah. Yeah, I've never really, I, I'm not, I'm not dew point fluent, but maybe yeah. it's time. It's the real deal. It's the real deal because it can be, you can have a very high percentage of humidity when it's 50 and it doesn't bother you at all. Mm-hmm. It can be 90 whatever percent. And it just means that the dew point is, you know, in the high forties, which is dry. doesn't matter. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I, then I'm going to guess that the dew point was like 75. Yeah. Yeah. Where I grew up, Mobile, Alabama, right there <laughs> on the Gulf of Mexico, where yeah. they have the every summer afternoon, about two o'clock, they have a torrential downpour and electrical storm. Yeah. Um, yeah. That is a place where even at 730 in the morning, you step out your back door and you just think, oh, God, no. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. I mean, don't worry. It's only going to last another three or four months. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The last time I went to a family reunion down in New Orleans, actually, the reunion itself was the Mississippi coast. But, Mm. you know, for for reference sake, we were in New Orleans for a bunch of it. And I mean, it's hard for me when I'm in Memphis during the summer to imagine that there is stuff worse than that. And New Orleans is worse. New Orleans is worse because New Orleans is, and I grew up, you know, that was the city that we went to, to be in a city when I was a kid. And New Orleans is worse because it's below sea level. Yeah. So the, you have the ambient humidity, the water that's in the air, but then you also have all of the water in the ground that really, really wants to be above it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, it's, it's like all the hot of the South and you're standing in a puddle, <laughs> which is evaporating in the, you know, yeah. the molten heat. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, well, I'll, I'll circle back to this, but in a much more pleasant way in my pool. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I want to um, hear that. I want to uh, hear that. What are you pulling on this week? So I, I want to talk a little about Unbound Gravel for a minute. Okay. Because it happened. It did. Uh, and I'm finding gravel riding very interesting in the moment, not just because, well, certainly not because I'm looking to pin on a number and become a hero, uh, but more because every time I think the gravel fad is maybe over, Mm-hmm. And I hope it's not. It's how I ride. I love it. Right. I'm not trying to. I hope it's not a fad. I hope it's just one of the things that we do now. Um, 
I every time I think it's over, it sort of has a, a it, it rises again. Um, you know, the industry created this uh, this category both as a reaction to people's stress around road riding, but also as a new way to ride bikes. Yeah. Or at least a new way to get people excited about riding bikes. I, you know, we can be cynical about that, but gravel riding is super fun. I do it all the time. I'm not mad at anybody about it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if it was cooked up in someone's back room as a, as just a way to get me to buy another bike, that's cool. Yeah. Thanks. It, yeah. Even if it came out of a Chinese laboratory. Exactly. I'm, I'm yeah. good. I'm good. Thank I'm you. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it. So I have a few friends that were on at Unbound and did, you know, big, awesome, life changing things. Um, And these are people I like and respect. So I'd like to I'd like to believe the event has sort of moved on from all the nonsense that looked like it was going to derail it Mm -hmm. back when it was known by another name. Yep. Um, Having said all that, I'm just wondering, I'm wondering with people's interest in it. And I'm thinking specifically about how I saw it on social media, that there was a a real wave of interest in Mm -hmm. what was happening, who was happening and all of that. And I'm just wondering if there's a potential for a sort of pro gravel tour of sorts, if that's viable, if it's televisable. Um, I mean, obviously, we know it is televisable. If you can televise a three week grand tour, you can televise a. 300 mile gravel event or whatever. Yeah. Whatever paint drying is at. paint drying. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, but it feels like an aspect of the sport with a clean slate as far as, you know, doping and other problems go. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm just, I'm sort of one of the things that's eternally on my mind and that readers of TCI will know is sort of like what, what is the trajectory of cycling as a spectator sport? Mm-hmm. What I, th- I feel, you know, s- certainly in this country, people are less interested in professional road racing than they were. It's not that they're not interested, it's, but they're less interested than they were. Yep. And a lot of that has to do with the blood doping era, blah, 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 et cetera. Money changes everything. Um <laughs> I just wonder if graveling is graveling. Sure. There we go. I wonder if graveling is free of baggage enough and interesting enough uh, that it could develop, you know, kind of in that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I guess it's sort of ripe for Red Bull to come in and (laughs) sponsor some events. And maybe that ruins the whole thing. Um. I'm I'm ambivalent about Red Bull and their influence on outdoor sports. Um, money does tend to ruin things. I mean, I think that's really what was at the root of the blood doping stuff in in pro racing. Right. There was a lot of money on the line. And so people spent money to cheat to get that money. Yes. Yes. Uh, um, it, it didn't hurt either that. You know, the system where domestiques once were recognized for being good domestiques was replaced by one where you didn't get re-signed to a team if you didn't amass enough UCI points to help the team stay in the pro tour. Right. So uh, there was a very perverse uh, reward system. Yeah. Guys who had to dope to carry water bottles. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's really what we're saying. Uh, exactly so you know yeah uh, yeah, guys who would have been you know happily regarded in the 1970s for being workhorses on the flats were also being made to lead the entire field up the first first category climb of a big alpine stage right or to do yeoman's work at the grand tours and then try like hell to get on a podium at some lesser race yep just yep. to earn points to make a roster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I yeah. So I, I don't want whatever the gravel thing is to go down that path, obviously. And maybe it's too niche. Maybe it's too, maybe it's a niche inside a niche. Niche? Do we say niche or niche? Niche? Uh, I, I, I say niche. Niche, because it's a French word and that's how they say it. 
Uh, uh, probably. I, I've, yeah. I've gotten bad on some of my pronunciations. Yeah. Well, I just wonder if it's too niche. Um, is it maybe not really having a moment except inside my cycling bubble? What do you think? Well, okay. First off, knowing what I do of Red Bull, they're not going to get interested. It is just not visually captivating enough. It's not rad enough. No, no, not, not by a long shot. Uh, now if you were to strap a rocket from, you know, some air force, uh, thing to them and, uh, you know, put them into a foam pit, then yeah, sure. Uh, but Riders yeah. carrying clubs, maybe? Yeah. I would watch that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying it's not interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it would be hard to get Red Bull interested. And, you know, at a certain level, um, given some of the pushback that Red Bull has received for the Rampage, where... You know, yeah. guys are are putting it all on the line with no health insurance. Um, right. You know, it's I'm OK with them not getting interested. That's just fine <laughs> yeah, by yeah, me. Yeah. I was really only bringing them up as the type of deep, deep, de- seemingly infinitely deeply pocketed mm-hmm. uh, group that could sort of decide that it was just a thing and make it a thing like in a year. Right. Right. They could yeah. do that. They, they could blow it up in in fairly short order. Um, right. And I meant that in all the connotations of blow up. Yeah. Uh, I will also say that I'm glad that USA Cycling does not have a guiding hand in what's happening mm. in gravel. Uh, right. If they were... Uh, the be all end all in terms of legitimizing this form of racing, it would be dying a slow, cruel death as we speak. Yeah. What uh, more to your point, you know, a kind of tour pro tour sort of thingy. I mean, obviously uh, a big prize list is going to pull out, you know, the Pete Stetna's and, you know, the Jeff Kabush's and, and those types. Um, mm. And, you know, I mean, that's an incentive system that uh, ought to work the way it works, you know? Right. But, uh, you know, when Salsa was doing the chase the chase, that did become a certain sort of pro tour, you know, where uh, even, you know, riders who weren't trying to make money from gravel racing, but, you know, wanted to like see a bunch of different stuff. There were people out there who were like, oh, well, salsa is going to be at this one. That must be the next thing I need to go to. Um, mm. And so to have what is really a very informal uh, nighting of of events, um, I, you know, I dig that. I I like the idea of something that unites a group of events that's not. um it, it, you know, isn't your standard sort of uh, uh, categorizer? Yeah, yeah. No, I like that. I like that. I think um, I'd love to see some of these events on TV. I might. I might like that. I'm not yeah. positive. Um, I mean, here's the thing. You know, watching a big pro race, you'd have a pack. You know, somebody would make this massive 1600 watt effort to escape from the pack. Four minutes later, you've got three guys up the road and you're wondering, like, what kind of time they can put into the field. And so that was better than paint drying, but only by half. And gravel riding. I mean, how often do you see somebody get out of the saddle uh, on a gravel bike? Yeah, I think it would require um, it would require I don't see them as live events the way they televise the tour. Mm -hmm. I would think of them as like a one hour edit Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. in trail running. Solomon puts on this thing called the Golden Trail series. And it's I don't know, it's five, six, seven races in various fantastic places across the globe. And they have a point system. And you can go on their 
YouTube channel and watch these races and they're edited down because, you know, trail running is also like paint drying a lot of the time, mm-hmm. but they do this great thing. And I, we, we can go deep down a wormhole here. I'll just state my theory quickly and briefly. All sports is entertainment, character driven mm-hmm. entertainment. I don't care which sport you watch. You are following characters that have evolving personalities um, that are have a dynamic with each other. I mean, I think I've argued before that the cyclist whose name shall not be said uh, was, you know, he was the rowdy Roddy Piper of cycling. Oh, yeah. Every everyone loved to hate him. And he was a brilliant entertainer. Yeah. Um, And so. You know, the thing that Solomon does with this trail running series is they develop the characters like they're showing the race and then they cut away and they give you a three minute profile of Stian Angermund, who's, you know, this Norwegian um, animal of a trail runner. And it's it's awesome. Right. So you get the character development. You see the thing. And of course, the way this one is organized, it's like a Red Bull thing. It's just a giant product ad. Mm hmm. which I can set aside because I enjoy the narrative of it. I think gravel racing um, would submit to that same treatment in a really, I think, pretty cool way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I agree. Uh, and I, you know, that could actually get me to tune in to tell that could get me to pick up some channels. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You know, I would actually pay money for that. Yeah. I think it just requires, you know, if you had like some grasshoppers and some unbound gravel and some, you know, if you had the big regional events kind of tied together in a loose series and they were all going to be on, I think I think it would be super cool. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I want royalties. Whoever goes through on this. Mm. I want royalties. I I support that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's fair to say that I just want royalties. As a rule, I just want them. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're entitled to want things. Um, yeah. No, no yeah. problem there. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I am, I am very excited to see how gravel continues to evolve. Um, I will say that I, I hope that we continue to not have domestiques and rabbits and that sort of thing. Uh, I like the every person for themselves ethos. Um, I like the ability uh, to have someone pull over and lend a hand to someone else without being penalized. Um, Hello, ASO. Um, Right. uh, And UCI and uh, moving Right. right along. I, um, and you know, the crazy part here is I don't think there's any doping in gravel riding, but that's really only based on the fact that there's no serious money in gravel riding. There's not enough money in it. Sure, sure. And so we're faced with a really vexing paradox of, well, we want gravel racing to be cool and entertaining and interesting. But the moment it's on TV, that means there's real money on the line. Yeah, and the moment there's right. real money on the line, somebody's going to go for the oxygen vector. Yeah, you could be right. You could so, be right. I, I think I think the best plan, I think this is true for all sports, what mm-hmm. I'm about to say. Every sport should be run by a committee of eight-year-olds. Okay. Okay, I think I see where this might go. So my kids have been through various youth sports Mm -hmm. um, and attached to all of them is some level of weird parental political nonsense. (laughs) Right. My takeaway is adults ruin most things that are fun. Yeah. Yeah. But an eight year old really keeps their eye on the ball. They really they're like, well, but that wouldn't be fun. Oh, that doesn't seem nice. I mean, these are just things I've heard eight year olds say. I think that's not fair. That's not fair. Exactly. 
And I think in an eight, an eight year old, like just talking about blood doping and an eight year, an eight year old wouldn't say, oh, well, you're provisionally suspended for six months. They just say you can't play anymore. Yeah. You know, uh, no cart court of arbitration for sport. Just an eight year old saying, mm, I don't like that guy. He's out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, at a certain level, that sounds a lot less arbitrary than the stuff that uh, the UCI comes up with. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think there's like when adults are involved, there's an officiousness mm-hmm. and a legal point of view that is just ugh, just so soul crushing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we haven't found a way to codify, you know, an eight year old's sense of what justice is. Right. That's why we need to hire the eight year olds. Yeah. Yeah. Like five, eight year olds for every sport. Mm -hmm. And, and they adjudicate all the stuff and you could even, even put that on before or after a race. Oh, that man bumped into that other man or like that woman definitely shouldn't have thrown her bottle right there. Yeah. She's out. Right. No, like, oh, that'll be, you know, 50 francs. Yeah. (laughs) You're she's out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. She pulled over to help that dude who rode away from her earlier. Give her an extra prize. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think that's exactly. Let's have a different podium for nice people. I don't know. I just think uh, adults have proven themselves unworthy governors. Yeah. I think that's entirely fair. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. Maybe we should try having an eight year old as a co-host on the show. Yeah. I've got yeah, one. I'm... I don't know if I can get him to talk into the microphone. Sure. I mean, we, maybe we should trial uh, an interview with him. Maybe we could put some of these pressing questions to him. Well, what do you think? Because maybe I, I would give my spiel about gravel just now and he'd be like, eh, boring. Yeah, well, it's not Terraria, so or, or Minecraft, um, right? So we, right. we we might not get far. Maybe they need gravel riding in Minecraft. Yeah, I call it Minecrap. <laughs> mind, mind, sorry, mind crap. Yeah. Oh, you you're taking a mind crap. Yeah. <laughs> My yeah. kids don't find that amusing. I I support that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. We're going to take a break and we will be right back. The Pace Line is brought to you by the Cycling Independent. We are the only online cycling publication that's entirely reader supported with absolutely no advertiser, sponsor, or investor commitments influencing our editorial. We don't have a sales team or middle management. It's just the three founders and a collection of talented and committed contributors who independently produce our content. To maintain our commitment to honest, reader-focused editorial with the best writers in the business, we need your help. Every dollar that comes in goes directly toward creating the content you see. A subscription is cheap, easy, and it goes a heck of a long way. Just go to cyclingindependent.com, click on Support TCI, and choose your level. Thanks for listening. Okay, we're back with the pace line, the podcast on two wheels. Patrick, what's your pull this week? So I'm just back from Memphis, as we mentioned. I took my boys back to visit grandma. Uh, I also took a mountain bike with me. It was the first time I've mountain biked in Memphis since the 1990s. Possibly. So a different bike. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Every time I've gone back since like 1996 or so. And I'm not even sure my visit in 96, I rode my mountain bike. I was driving through on my way to California and I had uh, a road bike and a mountain bike on top of my car. I know I did at least one road ride while I was there. I might not have pulled the mountain bike down off the car. Uh, So it's possible that like I haven't ridden a mountain bike in Memphis since 90, 91, 92, somewhere in there. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, every time I've been back since then, it's been a road bike or a gravel bike. Um, Hmm. I spent most of my time riding in Shelby farms on the East side of Memphis. 
And I did that for the simple reason that I have a familiarity with the trails from having ridden them years and years ago. And because that trail system is only a couple of miles from my mom's home, which means I can stash my bike and carrier in her garage and simply ride to all the rides that I do. Yeah, uh, that's most nice. of them. Yeah. When I rode those trails years ago, um, they did what most trails in parks typically do. They wind through the woods. They avoid the thickest undergrowth. And generally, they only went high uh, when it was absolutely necessary. Sure. Um, back in there, um, I, I don't know when they st- started letting trees really grow again, but at some point it had to be utterly denuded of everything because there are uh, a couple of levees back there. There are a couple little hills, hillocks, something like that. I don't Ooh, know if those are man-made. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't know if those were man-made, but the levees were obviously man-made because they parallel a creek. Right. Uh, by and large, though, the land in Shelby Farms is pretty flat. And to be fair, I'm going to qualify this further. It's not flat like eastern Arkansas or the Mississippi Delta uh, or Dallas. Um, But the elevation change within the park is less than 50 feet from high point to low point. Okay. Um, Since I've been away, a number of new trails have been cut and some interesting little side excursions or jumps uh, or just little rolly things for pumping have been built up by people. Um, I had, <laughs> I had two simultaneous reactions, uh, to encountering those features. Um, the first was, yay, they are using more of the limited terrain to make the writing more dynamic. Um, however, <laughs> I simultaneously was lamenting that, Whoever had been working to build those features hadn't done more to utilize the existing terrain. One of the big revelations of the trail building I've seen in the last six or eight years has been how often a hill is used not so much as something to go over or around, but how it can be turned into a berm to power a turn. Now, I'm not going to go into the neuroscience of what's going on when we get that charge from being you know, leaned over and riding into a berm, uh, you know, or what, what it means that we're changing our relationship to gravity, um, you know, just by leaning over. But that stuff is what makes mountain biking such a thrilling experience to so many riders. Um, I have a suspicion that this is probably going to end up becoming something of a multi-part poll, uh, just because I find it so curious. Um, but I'd like to hear from listeners who ride in places where new trails are being built. I'd like to hear from folks who are seeing more dynamic trails being built. Um, And even folks from who are seeing trails built, but aren't all that interesting. I, I'm just really curious to see what sorts of approaches are being taken uh, to the trail building going on in various places. One of the things that I noticed at Shelby Farms was that there doesn't seem to be any effort at all whatsoever being made to build sustainable trails. Uh, Erosion and sinkholes are a real problem along the levees um, and anywhere where man had built up uh, the ground. Um, it, It was funny to be tearing along and suddenly see half of the trail sunken four feet mm. um right you know it's like mm, might need to go around that um yeah. yeah it's funny to be riding along and then see your teeth on the ground that's weird <laughs> how'd those get there <laughs> nearly done that nearly 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 uh yeah. so john i mean you're in a place that is in some ways uh like memphis in that there's not a lot of elevation change right nearby um yep. so to make an interesting mountain bike trail, you got to be pretty creative. Otherwise, it's just another flat thing winding around or maybe going up a hill or down a hill. What is it you're saying? It's it's it is a fa- it, it, it is a fascinating thing. I so I've been riding mountain bikes a long time mm-hmm. and. You would think 
Or I would have supposed that I could tell you what makes a good mountain bike trail. Mm -hmm. But having ridden some really well-designed trails, Mm -hmm. um, and there aren't very many here, but having ridden some of them, I'm, it's a real art. It's a real art to take the topography, um, the, the rock, certainly where we are, um, and turn it into um, terrain and obstacles that's rideable and fun and, as you said, sustainable. Um, so I've seen a little bit of that. Like you have a place like Kingdom Trails mm-hmm. um, in Vermont that is really designed um and is fun the knock on the knock on kingdom trails for me actually is that there aren't very many obstacles mm-hmm. there it's it's flowy it's fun it's super fun if you can go there you should go there but it's not technical in the way that i think of technical riding mm-hmm. there are right near my house a lot of let's call them bandit trails of varying levels of quality. Like sometimes you find one you're like, Oh, someone smart did this. And then sometimes <laughs> it's a bunch of kids with a shovel, um, making kind of a weird jump line that turns into a bog when it rains. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I don't want to, I would never discourage the kids with the shovels. um, I think they're beautiful. And one day they'll turn into proper trail designers. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the places I go in Vermont, actually, uh, the Revolution Riders, it's um, Waitsfield, Vermont. They have an an amazing hillside, but kind of between two ski resorts. Mm -hmm. And they have built the most beautiful, long, switchbacky, A-line, B-line playground it's amazing and it's really good, but, but they've got professional trail designer involved. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what yields those results. So there are some, some wooden bridge features and jumps that are there. Um, but it is really, I think, um, here, most of the mountain biking is organic in the sense you know, <laughs> yeah. of like, this is where cows traveled between pastures, however many years ago. And it's, it's, um, as much as I love riding mountain bikes here, it's a very low flow situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, so I'm a member of this club that builds its own trails uh, on land out in Western Sonoma County. And so, you know, I take part a couple times a year in trail days uh, and yeah. I really enjoy it. Uh, but we, um, we are gaining expertise and we are gaining <laughs> insight and creativity, yeah. but we are still a long way from the sorts of stuff that you see at kingdom trails or, or in Bentonville on all of those mm-hmm. trails. Mm-hmm. We, we're not like that yet. I mean, one thing we're not, we're not using machine tools. We're not, you know, carving out, right. uh, anything we don't have uh, a backhoe um right uh so it's all it's all very hand work and there's a certain desire i think on the part of our leadership to keep this a little more old school and organic um but more and more you're seeing burmy type uh features being used uh using a hillside in a more creative way Um, the funny thing is having now ridden some trails in various places that weren't that well constructed, like for one, there's a, there's one place I've, I've ridden repeatedly where there's, um, it's not so much a series of switchbacks, but it's, uh, kind of a serpentine thing, the width of a fire road or logging road, Mm. um, and those turns come either too frequently or not frequently enough. <laughs> I, I can't quite tell because so the ideally uh, the the ideal that y- I think most trail builders are shooting for is 
terrain, if you're on a descent, you want to use the existing terrain in a way that you don't have to hit the brakes. That's the thing. Something that allows you to keep your momentum and maybe even through shifts of your own weight, pumping, that sort of thing, you might be able to generate additional speed. Um, This particular little serpentine thing, you're hard on the brakes uh, into every single turn. So it it is um, uh, a a flow antidote. Um, Yeah, I think these things can be fun. Mm hmm when they're bad. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe this is me. I mean, you know, New England mountain biking teaches you this. If you see a place where you can jump, don't cause there's the run out is full of garb. You know, it's going to be root. It, you're, you're going to T-bone into a tree. Mm-hmm. Just don't, you know what I mean? Like, unless you know the trail, don't make any assumptions. Um, yeah. And I'm I, on some level, I'm into that. I like the vibe of your group that doesn't want to use backhoes and stuff like that. I mean, I think once you start tearing up, tearing up the woods on that level, I'm not really comfortable with what that's doing to, you know, the trees, the plants. Mm -hmm. One thing that really bums me out, I'm going to be a hippie again for a second. I was in the woods with my dog this morning and there were all these signs about what you should or what you're, what you can or can't do with your dog, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought to myself, you know, these are the goddamn woods. Why are we going <laughs> to pretend that we make the rules here? Mm-hmm. Like, is, do these not belong to the trees and the squirrels and on some level, the goddamn dogs? Mm-hmm. Why mm-hmm. do we, why do we think, what is, why are we, you know, like in, if you don't want me to jump my mountain bike in your backyard, I get that. I'm still going to do it. But I get that. But if you're telling me like, oh, your dog can't do this in the woods or whatever, I just think we got to respect the woods. So I'm I'm kind of into a trail that is organic, um, not too intrusive, maybe not that easy, maybe not that high a flow. You know, I'm uh, on any trail. I'm more interested in the obstacles than in the berms. A berm is fun to ride. I love it. Uh, but that rock garden that I busted my shin open on three times last year, I'm really more into that than flow lines, which probably just makes me a jerk, but Mm. no, I don't know. I, I have a, I have a, uh, I have a, a strong feeling about the woods and how, how they should be treated. And I'm not doing the, I'm not, you know, better than anyone else. I'm, I'm still going in there and. (laughs) <laughs> ripping around on mountain bikes. So I don't want, before I get too sanctimonious, I'll climb back off this horse. <laughs> <laughs> Put it in the pasture. I, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's funny all the different angles that you can view that stuff through. So we have a problem with the quote unquote social trails uh, in mm. Anadol state park right by me. And so there have been rangers going into the trails and handing out tickets, uh, which I hear can run like $400. Um, yeah. And one of the cases that's being made for why people need to be out of those parts of the park and not riding those illegal trails is because of the damage that they cause uh, to the parkland. Well, I can verify um, because of the places I've been that the only sustainably built trails in all of Anadel State Park are the social trails that were built by bandits um, because they going in to maintain those trails is risky. (laughs) So they built them well, so they wouldn't need much maintenance. So there's there's that. And then there's the greater reality of like, well, you know, a hundred years ago, they were mining back in there and there are heavy metals in the ground from the mining. Um, and they were quarrying rock out of there. Uh, so to say that mountain biking is somehow doing damage, uh, to parkland that is pristine, uh, people find to be a real joke. And I, you know, I, I have to agree. Um, this is not a, a pristine wilderness. Um, these are not, you know, old growth trees. Um, 
the area has been logged previously. Uh, right. You Repeatedly. Know. Yeah. yeah. Um, you can find a lot <laughs> of that stone in San Francisco. We have we have a we have this a little bit here. And, you know, I think mountain bikers do get made the bad actor. But my experience is that bad actors are the bad actors, that there are bad mountain bikers mm-hmm. who do the wrong things and tear things up in ways that are not cool. And there are hikers that tear things up and step on things they shouldn't and leave garbage. And, you know, my general approach, I don't actually, there's a a trail system very close to me that I don't go to anymore because it is sort of hotly contested and there are trails you can ride and trails you can't ride. And I just don't want to, I'm not trying to be part of it. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? I'm not, Mm -hmm. I'm not, I don't go there looking for a conflict or, I don't want to think too hard about what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Um, So I tend to go other places and, and the real path forward for me is just to, you know, try to be in places where there are legitimate trails, but there aren't that many people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the sweet spot for me. I'm looking and it, and it, it sort of is what it is at that point. And a lot of these trails, and this is why gravel riding, I mean, we're, 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 going full circle and full circle again. But this is why gravel riding is interesting for me because you can get a small track of woods that's um, not part of conservation land or a park, but there's a trail through it. And, you know, you can rage, rage through there on your gravel bike and then hit the road and get to another one and then connect up to another one. And you're not messing anybody up and you're not in a conflict zone. And that's just how I, I, I want to ride mountain biking. I love mountain biking, but it can be fraught. Mm, yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, and you know, just one other thought, one of the things that people constantly bring up is like, well, look, if you'll let us build more trails, you know, we can space everybody out better and decrease the opportunity for user conflict. Um, yeah. you know, so it's it's a situation with no easy answers. No, and it's here in New England I think it's particularly bad because all of the developable the developable land mm-hmm. was developed. If mm-hmm. it could be sold and developed it was. And you know, when at the beginning of the pandemic when everyone was trying to be out in the woods again, you became keenly aware that there wasn't enough green space for everyone. Yeah, I can imagine. So we screwed up on a fundamental level. In fact, a lot of the places I ride are wetlands Mm -hmm. because they're not developable or (laughs) they're too expensive to develop. Mm -hmm. So there's like a, a, in any, in any zoning planning, whatever discussion, developers always have sort of the loudest voice because it's the one with the money. Yep. Um, And, and few communities feel wealthy enough to say, no, we need green space. We need mm. woods. Woods are important. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'm sorry. I climbed on my horse again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I, I, I think we've beaten your horse now. Um, yeah. Oh, poor <laughs> let's horse. move on to Paceline Picks. What's yours this week? So this week, I'm picking Fixies. Fixed gear bicycles. Okay. Well, that's not very gravel. Um, No, (laughs) no. Every bike is a good bike. We know that, right? Uh, Yes. And this is another category where, where we have a really terrible vocabulary problem. The term, the term fixie is awful. Yeah. Like it's cute. Ah, it's just, mm, I hate it. Yeah. Track bike, but track bike is inaccurate, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've none of those bikes that I've ridden have ever been on a track (laughs) Um, and everything else has too many syllables. So, um, so your question obviously is going to be, so why fixed gear? Um, And I know, I know it's not 2004, but um, in the heyday of these things, I rode them a lot when Uh I was commuting into town. I rode them a lot. Um, and I just love that way of riding. I love my, so I had my friend, Mike Salvatore, uh-huh. um, 
build, you know, Mike, mm-hmm. uh, build me one a few years ago. Uh, Mike, uh, was the builder of sketchy cycles, uh, which was his one man, one man brand. Uh, mostly he built for, for friends. And I, so I'm, you know, this is one of those like bike nerdy things where I'm very lucky to know a bunch of bike builders and, I Mike, I always wanted one of Mike's bikes and um, I said, make me a fixie. And he got he got pretty excited about that. So I don't ride in that much because I live at the top of a steep hill. Um, and so and walking back up is not always the best look. Um, but I rode it the other day. And, you know, it is just this magical way to ride a bike. It's like a wholly different experience than riding a freewheeling bike with brakes. It is. It definitely is. I have a brake. I do have a brake because I have a wife and kids. Mm-hmm. So I do have a brake. But, you know, it's got this um, this flow to it. And it's got this nuance and... um flow did i say flow already yeah but that's uh, okay because it it's oh, yeah. worth saying twice in that context i think so i wrote it to meet a friend for coffee and he was saying how much he loathed riding fixed and how he always felt like he was gonna die um every time he tried it so i slapped him okay um, that's appropriate yeah not really i didn't he paid for the coffee uh so he can say what he wants but i've been riding a lot more lately generally banking some of those base miles i skipped earlier in the spring <laughs> and so i'm feeling that much more comfortable on the bike generally uh and riding fix really dovetails with that so nicely mm-hmm. um it is bike handling in its purest form right yeah um, you have this like integrated sense of how the machine works. And in some way, I think more control over it as an object. Um, I, I'll say that what I find really fascinating is that, you know, it's a, at a certain level, it's a much more human thing because there's not much that we get to do where we can coast, you know, right. uh, if you stop paddling your way across a pool, you stop moving. Right. If you stop moving your legs as you're running, you stop. And so needing, I mean, one of the things I love about bikes is coasting. That really is one of the very (laughs) best things. But if you want to your point, if you want to feel that connection to the machine and you want to feel that certain uh, requirement for coordination and graceful movement, Right. A, f- a fixie will, uh, or, or, uh, fixed gear bicycle, uh, right. will, it requires that of you. It will demand it of you. Sure. It demands awareness of what's going on around you. It's, it's just a completely active riding experience. That's exactly right. You are not coasting. In <laughs> fact, it doesn't go well if you zone out, you know, yeah. it really, you have to be plugged into it the whole time. And I don't want to get corny. It's too late. I've already gotten corny like four times. Uh, but you know, it is sort of balletic in mm-hmm. its in its yeah. movement. Yeah, I, um, I I I have long respected that. Yeah, and I think when you know when I was younger, like in the eighties and nineties, um, track bikes had this mystique and purity about them. Right? It was like a New York Courier thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of got ruined by the fixie boom, right? Like the shine came off. But those are cultural things. Fads, those are mm-hmm. cultural things. They're not mechanical things. A bike doesn't become bad because the culture moves on from it. Yeah. So so this week I'm picking fixies and I'm tooling around town and I'm having a hell of a lot of fun. Cool. Huh. All right. W- um, what do you got this week? Well, my pick this week is probably going to surprise a few people. I'm going with IMBA, uh, the International Mountain Bike Association. Uh, Now, there are any number of reasons why the mountain bike community is frustrated with the organization's direction. But one thing that IMBA has done and done well is train people on how to build sustainable trails. They lead Mm. classes in a number of locations. IMBA's 
Trail Solutions Initiative accounts for, get this, I, I knew that it was around and I knew it was a thing, but I thought I should learn something more about it. So I went to the site. <laughs> there are roughly three dozen different build sites in nearly 20 different states active hmm. right now. Uh, so for whoever, anyone who has ever done uh, a trail day, I really recommend checking out their site to see if there's an initiative uh, near them that they might get involved in. Um, And uh, if you've never done one, you should go too. Um, I think it's something that pretty much all mountain bikers and maybe maybe even an awful lot of gravel riders uh, would do well to have some experience with. I can say from considerable experience now that the satisfaction that comes from riding a trail that I helped build. Yeah. It's a pretty powerful experience. It's, it's a different sort of connection to the land. Um, and so, you know, there are, there are some other ways to learn it, but, uh, right now learning how to build a sustainable trail is probably most easily learned from Imba. And Hmm. so, I think they do deserve, you know, a, a positive shout out, even as we disagree with them on an, an awful lot of things. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. No, I think that is I think that's right. I think uh, when you do that stuff, it you gain an appreciation for trails that you take for granted just yeah. rolling through. Yeah, absolutely. I said a minute ago, you know, one of the we ride, we have a lot of wetlands trails here. And one of the ways they mitigate the damage to the wetlands is they make they do these enormously long wooden bridges, Mm -hmm. you know, simple footbridge. Right. But but they're there so that you're not actually putting putting your tires in in the mud or or damaging those particular plants. And those bridges take a lot of work to build And I've been. I've been so grateful for them lately because they do help me get to and connect parts of rides that just wouldn't happen otherwise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I, my limited experience riding those out there, I I mean, it's very entertaining, you know, you're riding uh, past, you know, water and, you know, all sorts of plant life growing up out of the water. Um, I've never been on them like on a foggy afternoon. Foggy evening, I mean, or, you know, foggy morning. Uh, yeah. I kind of wonder what that would be like. Well, let me tell you, uh, they, when they are wet uh-huh. in the morning, uh-huh. um, they are like freshly zamboni dice. Yeah. And so there's definitely a, um, a, uh, a, a butt-clenching experience you can have when you... And a lot of them, you know, they're not, um, they're not, they're meant to be stepped up onto. So you're, you're wheeling to get access to some of them and, uh, you really have to keep your weight <laughs> right down the center line because anything off and, uh, you're gone. Have you ever colored outside the lines once up on one? Oh yeah. I've been off some. <laughs> yeah. I've fallen off a mo- I've yeah, I've fallen off I've fallen off most of people people who listen regularly will think that I am the worst bike rider. Uh because I I'm off the bike a fair amount. I like to think it's because I take risks and uh I'm not that much for safety. Um <laughs> I, I fell on the gra- on our gravel ride yesterday. Everything's overgrown. There's a rock by the side of the trail. I just it was completely invisible and I clipped it hard with my uh, drive side pedal and took a, a, a comedic slide. I wasn't hurt at all, but I was on the ground and I was on the front of the group. So. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Those, those unexpected inspections of the ground below us uh, are yeah. um, unexpected. Yeah. <laughs> and as long as you're not really hurt, so amusing, I think. Yeah. Uh, I had to go fishing around in the undergrowth for a pair of glasses last week. (laughs) (laughs) I I stood up after having fallen and and I'm looking around. I'm like, it seems awfully bright now. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh, there are no glasses on my head. Yeah. Uh. (laughs) Yeah. All righty. Well, that's a wrap on another episode of the Pace Line. 
Hey, everybody, keep sending us questions. Uh, we sure do like that. Uh, and I hope to have some more to to respond to in the next few weeks. Um, if you've got an idea, please drop by the Cycling Independent and put a suggestion in the comments. We hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you have, please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes us easier for other listeners to find. Until next week, I'm Patrick Brady with John Lewis. Thanks for listening to The Pace Line. Mm-hmm.